Welcome to Rare on Air, the monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month, we will be exploring the challenges, experiences, and successes of people who live with a rare condition. In this month's episode about the European health data space, I speak to Veronica Popper, who lives in Romania and is the mother of a seven-year-old boy with MCT8 deficiency, also known as Alan Herndon Dudley syndrome. Veronica is also a colleague of ours at Eurodis, being our digital patient engagement manager. Veronica shares with us her experiences of healthcare professionals failing to be aware of her son's medical history and situation, due in part to health data systems in desperate need of improvements. I also speak to Yelena Malanina, our data director at Eurodis, who breaks down for us the EU's plans to improve the use of and unlock the potential of health data through the proposed European Health Data Space, or EHDS for short. Yelena and Veronica, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Julian. Thank you very much for inviting us. Hi, Julian. Thank you for this invitation. I'm really happy to be here. So, Veronica, I'd like to begin the conversation with you and your experiences. First of all, when did you first learn that your son may have had a condition that needed a diagnosis and medical action? And how was the diagnosis eventually obtained? So my son was about four months old when I started noticing the first signs. Uh, We lived in a different country then. We lived in Greece. At first, his symptoms were uh, barely noticeable and the pediatrician reassured me that some children may develop uh, at a different pace. However, time passed and at five months old, when he was still not holding, supporting his head, I insisted we see a specialist. And here is where the relationship with the pediatrician started going a bit difficult because rather than acknowledging my concerns, he thought I'm, I'm inventing the seriousness of my son's symptoms. Later on, when he couldn't deny the seriousness of the, of the symptoms, he blamed them on me. It was a very difficult period in which I started questioning my mental health because after all, he was a specialist and, and I was not. And this, this took a, a heavy toll on my self-esteem, my relationship, my already shaken emotional state, and most importantly, it delayed my son's diagnosis. Much later, I learned that this is something that happens quite often in the rare disease world. Efforts of parents, usually mothers, trying to find a diagnosis for their children are being misdiagnosed with Munchausen by proxy. We finally received a recommendation to see a specialist. And then after the first one came a second one and a third one. And uh, no one seemed to know what could be wrong. At some point, we were told that uh, he's been tested for all treatable diseases. And since it's none of them, uh, we should not bother finding out because we won't be able to treat him anyway. I saw this as my cue to start looking for medical opinions somewhere else in other country. After more than a year, my son was finally diagnosed in Romania and his mutation was confirmed two months later. During my son's life, we have gathered an impressive number of, of documents, tests and investigations, some in Greek, some in Romanian, some in English. Uh, and we had to translate them for the doctors in each country to be able to understand them. So yeah, his files, because now there are several of them, are quite heavy and need to be carried around whenever we go meet a new doctor. That sounds like a very traumatic initial experience, Veronica, especially the doctor's suspicion of you having Munchausen's by proxy. 
For listeners who may not be familiar, Munchausen's by proxy is a psychological condition in which a caregiver fabricates or even induces illness in a dependent person to gain attention and sympathy for themselves. Dealing with that while desperately searching for a diagnosis for your son, who genuinely did have a condition and did need a diagnosis, must have been so difficult. Thank you for sharing that story. So eventually, of course, you did get a diagnosis for your son. How would you explain that condition that your son has? Do you know what it's caused by and what exactly are its symptoms? So it's called MCT8 deficiency. It also has a separate name, which is Alan Herndon Dudley syndrome. That's why the name of the foundation, MCT8 HDS. Yeah, so uh, MCT deficiency is a genetic X-link related syndrome. It affects mostly boys, but there are also female patients, fewer, but they exist. Uh, MCT8 is a protein that has the unique job of transporting uh, thyroid hormones across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain. Uh, The presence of thyroid hormones in the brain during the development stage is is literally crucial for cognitive development. In MCT8 deficiency, however, the, the recipe, let's say, is misspelled. The gene holding this recipe is called SLC16A2. And any mutation in this gene leads to the wrong production of the MCT8 protein. Because it's not as it should be, the blood-brain barrier sees this protein as foreign and doesn't allow it to pass and deliver the thyroid hormone into the brain. As a result, the brain develops without thyroid hormones, which has catastrophic effects on its overall development. In the meanwhile, however, uh, the levels of thyroid hormones are very high in the body where they lead to peripheral toxicity. It's also called thyrotoxicosis. And this thyrotoxicosis can create severe symptoms. Sometimes sometimes they're life-threatening. A few symptoms associated with MCT deficiency would be lack of head control, uh, central hypotonia, intellectual disability, incapacity to put and maintain weight, dystonia, spasticity, just just to name a few. Even though it's hard to diagnose because of its rarity, but also because none of the symptoms are exclusively associated with MCTA deficiency, there are simple blood tests that may lead to suspect an MCTA deficiency diagnosis. In 95% of cases, T3 levels will be at the superior limit of the reference values where free T4 will be under this limit. And these two tests may lead to a recommendation of genetic testing for MCTA deficiency. My son's diagnosis, as many other children, has been delayed and there's nothing I can do about it now. But I can make sure that we do everything in our power to decrease the diagnosis time for other children that will be diagnosed. So together with other parents from uh, the worldwide community, we created the foundation that you mentioned, Julia, the MCT8 HDS Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to the needs of uh, MCT8 patients and their families everywhere in the world. We raise awareness for MCTA deficiency with the general public, but also with medical professionals. Uh, We empower and support our community and we aim to increase medical research. There's still a lot to be done, but I feel hopeful every time I have the the opportunity to help a family. Absolutely. No, that's really important. So you've already discussed having to store lots of information yourself and, and bring it around. But I might ask you to go into further detail, actually, about what your personal experience has been of the Romanian health system's use and management of data. Are there electronic records that are shared between places? Are they maintained? What has that experience of health data systems been like for you and your son? 
Whenever we need to go to a new specialist outside the hospital that we're registered at, I arm myself with all the documents in my son's medical record, which by now must weigh more than four kilo, and a lot of patients. We do have a medical team that may answer my son's needs, but they are from different hospitals. So there is no exchange of data between them regarding my son's evolution. Unless, of course, I bring them the documents myself. When we need to investigate new things, we need to visit new specialists. So we need to take all the documents with us. Even though I have learned uh, his medical record by heart and I can confidently have a medical discussion with, uh, with any specialist. However, that introduces a new, a new problem which is that of, of trust because I'm not a medical professional and most medical professionals uh, are reluctant to trust what I'm saying, what I'm telling them. I remember this one time a doctor who was Googling as I was explaining my son's diagnosis in order to ensure that the syndrome actually exists. To your point, medical records do exist in Romania, but they are specific to each hospital. They are quite untransparent. So I don't know how often they are being updated or kept up to date. Medical records that could be shared across hospitals and cross-border would be a wonderful blessing for patients with uh, and carers of people with, with rare diseases uh, who need to keep a significant amount of information in paper format and, and carry them physically to appointments. Not to mention the complication if there are several languages involved and searching, as searching for a diagnosis may take you away from your, for your country. It is important for electronic health records to exist and be connected but I do believe that it's equally important for them to be built with understanding and respect for, for patients' needs. As mentioned before, medical professionals tend to trust the opinion of other medical professionals rather than patients or carers. So we need to make sure that patients' voices are heard and taken into account, even when they may challenge the medical records. And this may be the case in the example I, I gave before with parents in their search for a diagnosis being misdiagnosed themselves with, with Munchausen by proxy. In my opinion, patients should have control of their electronic health records and be able to decide what to share, when and with whom. Definitely. You've mentioned quite a lot there in terms of the importance of these records being maintained, these records being shared across institutions and ideally borders, which of course is particularly important for people living with a rare disease, given that rare disease patients for specific conditions can be very scarce and actually dispersed across European borders with not many within one country. And you've also, of course, mentioned the importance of patients themselves having awareness of their records, and I guess also control and there being transparency. At this point that I'd like to bring Yelena into the conversation, I'd like to ask you about the European health data space. But first of all, what exactly is the European Health Data Space, or EHDS for short? What is it? And how far has the EHDS, or data space, progressed within the EU's policymaking process? Yeah, uh, so we can start from what the European Health Data Space actually is. To answer your short, it's just the buzzword for the system, which um, would facilitate data sharing. So the idea is that uh, we start to share much more health data for a variety of different needs. So one of the parts and ideas of the data space is to create electronic health record standard, which would be common for all member states. So in practice, it would mean that member states would need to create the ones who did not have yet electronic health record systems. They can do it the way 
they like. So each country would have their differences, national specialities and all these things. But the idea is that they do implement a common standard, which would allow them to speak with each other. And for us as uh, users, patients, carers to travel across uh, borders and use our records or medical prescriptions in pharmacy issued in our home country somewhere else while we travel or while we seek care in another country or consulting another specialist. So this is one part. And another part is to use more data. And I also would like to say better quality data for another type of need, secondary need, which is usually associated with research, policy making, and creation of different type of innovation as well. So we're speaking about new treatments creation, about new digital tools creation, potentially services and all that stuff. So to start using and more importantly, having that data, because in case of rare diseases, this data is not always available or not always properly recorded because as Veronica mentioned already, there is language issue in, among the EU member states. So this sounds very simple, but in fact, it influences quite a lot in a way we do process data and record it and keep it and then use it for, for research and other purposes. So in a nutshell, it's a system for data sharing. It's the entire ecosystem with different types of um, actors, also new actors potentially. And a small remark for the moment, uh, it's not an end deal of what the European health data space will look like. It is still just a proposal which is currently being discussed by EU policymakers. Uh, so for the moment, it's the European Parliament with elected members uh, of the Parliament and different types of political parties discussing different aspects of the proposal. And of course, the council, which is um, a representation of the member states, who are also discussing and forming their national positions of how they would like to see the European health data space proposal. So for the moment, everybody's getting ready for negotiations and negotiations, hard to say when exactly they would start among free institutions. So it's the Parliament, Council and the Commission, but most likely uh, towards the second half of this year, maybe next year, depending also on where uh, disagreement appears, it might also be prolonged for unlimited time. So this is where we stand right now. I see. Interesting. So with them being proposals, I imagine there's lots of room for improvement based on what's currently been proposed and for the rare disease community and our own organization, Eurodis, to lobby for improvements and lobby for amendments. So you've mentioned sort of the primary and secondary use of data. Would I be correct in understanding that Improving the primary use of data involves making sure that there are adaptations that make sure that individual patients' experience of healthcare directly is improved. And the secondary use of data is maybe more about improving healthcare for people beyond that patient. Would that be a correct distinction? Yep, that is correct. And also I can add just to clarify even more the distinction between these two. So the primary use of data is always associated with the primary purpose why the data is used. So in case of healthcare is that the patient goes to the doctor or any type of healthcare setting or 
even to pharmacy actually to 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 get a prescription from the drugs uh, for the medicine for the drug and uh, this is the primary purpose of data use so traditionally electronic health record is associated specifically with that so it's a relationship between the patient and healthcare professional and whatever happens during that service and secondary as you correctly mentioned is when we use the data which was collected during the primary use for any other purpose in fact so in healthcare that any other purpose is um, statistics for instance so we do have medical statistics as a mean to secondary health data processing research uh, different types of um, trials um, investigations on medical devices on treatments this is all considered uh, secondary health data use as well creation of uh, different type of new services evaluation also whether healthcare system is efficient at the country level let's say so when the government or any other entity evaluates uh, the efficiency of the system this is also where the data which comes from from the primary use is very helpful and you can also assess the shortage of medical personnel sometimes so it gives a lot a lot of information and a lot of fuel also for progress if it is used correctly both for individual needs and also societal needs for healthcare system needs so it has a huge advantage and also if we are speaking you know about medical science outside of whatever we have now with digitalization information was always a fuel for medical progress from very ancient times whatever we know about ourselves our bodies whatever treatments we have are actually happening thanks to data so of course there are certain risks the need for that and the benefits of that are very clear because we're able to live much longer and much more fulfilling lives you've talked i think already about standardization across the eu but reflecting on veronica's experience in particular might you be able to recap or discuss the promises of the EHDS with regard to improving the primary use of data for patients directly and might you also be able to provide an evaluation of where the EHDS could go further in that regard i think it holds a big promise for all the countries for instance for countries with less developed systems and um, the example veronica mentioned if the proposal comes as a mandatory requirement if if it appears to be the regulation so the regulation means that all member states will have to comply with the same set of rules established by by the law in that case there will be a mandatory requirement for every single EU member state to have electronic health record it can come in stages again electronic health record is a buzzword uh, there are many components into that so it can be one component adopted for instance patient summary or prescriptions and you can view it as a puzzle where you put different pieces all together gradually so this would be a start and also of course together with this requirement there will be some funding opened up and infrastructure offered for the member states which is currently built at the EU level and there are some ongoing pilots to test different types of infrastructure which uh, would serve the member states as a platform basically uh, to to connect but also to create their own national systems for the one who does not have that for countries who are already more advanced it's also not so simple actually because they would need to potentially reform their existing system to fit the european idea to fit the european standard and for the citizens of the countries who already have electronic health record for them it might mean an expansion of what they can do with their electronic health record meaning 
that the resident in Germany would be able to travel to France or Croatia and uh, use their home record elsewhere, which is now not really the case. There are some trials, pilots and going with some countries uh, who have been previously connected to the common EU infrastructure. But this is just a pilot type of thing where things are tested, things are being tried, but it's not largely available to everyone. But the idea that all countries would have certain expansion, and of course, we cannot speak about the environment where everybody would become suddenly the same and on the same level. For some countries, it will take much longer to come to the level of the country which has been working on the system for the last 30 years. At the same time, it might be a little bit easier because when you start from scratch, you don't need to readapt the entire system, which exists already to a new requirement, but you can just start the system with very clear requirements, hopefully very clear requirements. And yeah, maybe it will be faster actually for, for the countries who do not have much yet to build that system with the clear guidelines. I see. That's interesting. Hopefully that will be the case. Can you outline uh, for me the promise of the data space with regard to improving the secondary use of, of health data and your evaluation of those proposals as well? What does the data space propose in terms of making sure that data is used for the benefit of a broader patient population? So when it comes to secondary use, this is actually the most complicated and the least straightforward question to have an answer to. And I will explain why. So the EU functions based on treaties, which were signed many years ago. These treaties uh, sometimes reappear and uh, they agree together with the member states on different types of rules and also competences. So healthcare has been traditionally a competence where the member states have most rights to have a say. So this is something which is traditionally regulated by the national level. It comes um, due to different medical traditions, different types of research traditions as well. And this is something which member states like to keep as their own garden. The EU has uh, competence when it comes to cross-border healthcare. So whenever we're speaking about uh, different types of um, challenges which are could be addressed at the cross-border level, then the EU might have a say in there. So when we are addressing issues of secondary health data use, and here I might use just the word research to, to kind of unify all of that. So when it comes to research, the issue is that the rules are very mixed. So some member states have uh, more relaxed view on um, data uses for research. Some have more restrictions. So when it comes to research at the cross-border level, we're facing a variety of different rules, which is understandable in the given the context of cultural differences, traditional differences and all of that. But it has quite a negative impact when it comes to research on rare diseases and collection of knowledge on rare disease, because especially in case of ultra rare disease, when there can be just a few patients in the entire region, this data is really crucial. And when researchers are facing restrictions of um, having this data and also having accurate data, the knowledge of that disease would not develop that much because of different national restrictions. So one of the ideas of the data space is to harmonize the approach to data sharing among the member states and manage to find a common agreement on how do we share data collectively, preserving national rules and national and with respect to national traditions and keeping probably national elements of healthcare systems, because again, they are very 
unique to each country. But at the same time, without having this huge sacrifice, which we currently have of lack of research on certain conditions and lack of data, good quality data on certain conditions. So this is an attempt. This is the idea which the proposal has is to harmonize as much as possible the views on data. It's not very easy task to do because as I mentioned, treaties in the legal system, they prevail. So this is the highest legal act, which would determine still the competences will not change between the EU and the member states. So we would need to rely on the law to to sort of find a middle ground. As you know, compromise is not uh, something which makes every party happy usually, but this is something where someone gets a little bit. So by the end of the proposal, we hope that at least there will be a starting point, at least there will be a base on how do we treat data for research. And making even a small step might lead to an improvement and it might open the door for the potential later when we have figured out electronic health records because also electronic health record, I must say, it has a direct impact on secondary data uses because thanks to a common system, which is potentially coming of how do we record the data and, and solving language problem would significantly already contribute to, to the data which would be available for secondary use and quality of that data, because for the moment, we don't even have the same uh, disease classification system used among the member states. It, it's not unified. So these are small technical things, which are in fact very huge, very pricey. So once this figured out, it would also have a positive effect on secondary use. But we should not also look at the proposal as the only solution to all of our problems. But we we hope that it would be a step towards something much better. And yeah, it will take quite a lot of time, I must say, uh, to have a system which we envision and which we would like to have. But uh, we cannot the entire elephant all at once. But if we cut it in pieces, it's quite digestible. So Yelena, across both the primary use of health data and the secondary use, what would be your main message to EU policymakers about the opportunity they must take to make the most of these proposals I'm right in understanding that the data space is with the European Parliament right now. So perhaps MEPs, members of the European Parliament, have an opportunity to make improvements to it. What do you hope they will do to improve the proposals as they currently stand? I think one of the key messages I have at the moment, knowing also where the negotiations uh, within the Parliament and the Council stand now, I think a really, really important thing is to match expectations with the reality. And this would make the proposal a success in that case. What do I mean by, by saying that is that the proposal uh, of the commission is really, really ambitious. And the, this is a nice vision to have. And this is something we should certainly start uh, making steps towards. But what is important is to look at the reality of the member states, where they are at the moment, what is realistic to achieve and to have a very realistic timeline and uh, expectations what and when and how should be achieved. For the moment, the proposal is so ambitious that the proposal is expected to bring whatever they plan 
just in 18 months. And this is not going to happen. So what we need is to have gradual planning and also uh, matching of resource with the planning because it, it's in fact, it's uh, the proposal is that huge that we will all face the reforms of healthcare systems as we know them because they would become much more digitalized than we, we have them now, especially in some countries. In some countries where they're already digitalized, there would still be changes. And uh, this should be taken into account and also national situations and divergences also have to be taken into account because in some countries they, they do have regional uh, healthcare systems and this is also very different because in some countries one region has electronic health record and another maybe not or there are differences within countries. So putting this all these elements together and developing a very realistic plan with clear milestones and um, the strategic goal of all of that would be my uh, wish for the policymakers for the moment. Just be realistic. No, that all makes sense. Thanks, Yelena. So I'd actually like to put my final question on the data space to Veronica. So Veronica, coming back to you, what would be your key message to EU policymakers about the need to improve the use of health data across Europe for the broader MCT8 AHDS community, which of course you, you represent, but also for the community of, of people living with all sorts of rare diseases right across Europe. If you had the ear of an EU policymaker who had the, the potential to table an amendment to the data space, what would be your message to them about the importance of the matter and what they should do? As Elena said, uh, both in a context of, of healthcare and secondary use of data, uh, data should be shared. Most importantly, data should be shared with respect to patients' needs and preferences. Also, uh, in the context of uh, EHDS, there is a dire need for digital health literacy initi initiatives, as trust is of utmost importance in building such a system. Also, to Elena's point, indeed, uh, some member states have more developed health systems than others, and that impacts directly their capacity to share data. There should be an uh, optimal level of requirements from local systems. However, for member states that cannot reach this optimal level on their own, time and resources uh, should be allocated to bring them to the desired uh, optimal level. So I guess my hope for the HDS is that uh, it won't leave any member state behind. You're absolutely right, Veronica, to mention that no country should be left behind, especially given the impactful story that you shared earlier on. Thank you very much for joining me today, Veronica and Yelena. It's been a really great conversation and really informative. And hopefully the EU can make the most of the data space for our community. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Julian. It was a pleasure. Have an amazing day. Thank you very much for insightful conversation. Thank you.